Now we're going to look at the famous question two on the mode of the union of the word incarnate. And this is really where Aquinas begins his exploration of what is the mystery of God being human in Christ? What is the incarnation? And studies it from about question, I think, two to around 22 or so. Uh, It's a long (coughs) analysis of the structure of the incarnation. But it's very important when he begins a study like this to think, where does he begin? And Aquinas, being a theologian, tries to cast the most light on the mystery. So he starts with what he thinks is the thing that gives you the most fundamental illumination on the mystery of God being human, which is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The union of humanity and divinity, of the human and divine nature, takes place in the one hypostasis. What does that word mean? Well, one conventional translation is person, divine person. Jesus is not a human person like you and I. He is a divine person. That's the teaching of the church, the the eternal word of God. He has a human nature like ours, but he is not a human person. We'll come to that in a moment. So there's a human that's not a human person? Yeah. That's the teaching of the church. But he's like us in he's all things. Fu- but he's fully human and he's not a human person. How can he be like us if he's not a person? Good question. We'll come to it in there. But it is the doctrine of the church. So it's not like a eccentric opinion. So the teaching that... So let me just say, as a way into this, there are two famous, most famous, Christological controversies in the 4th and 5th century. There's the problem of the, the heresy associated with Nestorius, so-called Nestorianism, and the heresy is associated with Eutyches, so-called monophysitism. Now, what Nestorius claimed was that in the union of divine and human natures in Christ, you had to have two autonomous subjects, the eternal word and the man, Jesus Christ. So that, in effect, although he, he, he called about two prosopoi in Greek, uh, two persons or two agents, two subjects, you have two persons and two natures. This was condemned to the Council of Ephesus. One of the reasons it's condemned is because Nestorius took it to its logical extreme and said it is not right or fitting to call the Virgin Mary the mother of God. She's the mother of the man Jesus who is united to the temple, uh, sorry, to the word as, as God dwelling in his temple. In other words, the man Jesus is like a temple and the eternal word dwells in that temple as he would in a saint, but to a higher degree. And so there are two subjects, the man Jesus and the eternal word, and there are two natures. Now, the church taught against that. There is one person and one hypostatic subject, one concrete subsistent person, who is the eternal word, who is both God and man. So when you touch the hand of Jesus, you touch the hand of the eternal word, the Son of God. If you put a spear through the human heart of Christ, you put a spear through the human heart of God, the eternal word and Son of God. Okay? If the man, Jesus, dies on the cross, it is God who dies in virtue of his human nature on the cross, who experiences separation of body and soul. It is the person of the word who dies. Now, that's the teaching of the church at Ephesus. Now, the other teaching is, is this is all going to come up in the the question. The other teaching is Eutyches, who reacts against the other extreme, against the stories, and says, look, not only is there one person, the eternal person of the word made flesh, There's also, after the union, only one nature. You can't distinguish a human and a divine nature in Christ because if you distinguish them, you're going to have to posit a distinction of persons. And then there won't really be an incarnation. And the church taught against him in the Council of Chalcedon based on the teaching of Pope Leo the Great in the tomb of the Tome of Leo. It's a fantastic letter. You can find it online. Just Google Tome of Leo. 
T-O-M-E of Leo. Read this letter, it's four, four pages long. It's a fantastic teaching that Christ is one person in two natures and that Christ is truly like us in all things except sin as man and truly one with God in his divine essence as God. But he is the one person of the word who is both fully God and fully man. Yeah. Okay, so the first question is going to be treated in the second article, I believe. So hold fast. The, se the, the second question about what the Coptics teach, I would refer you to the conversations that are ongoing between the Catholic Church and the Coptic Church that you can find testimony to on the Vatican website in the Pontifical Council for Christian Unity in the common accords between Monophysites and Chalcedonian Christians. <clears throat> Because there's attempts, even as we speak, to try to nuance what they actually might mean by that and how it might accord in some ways with what we mean. You can also find a very good book on this in the patristic era called The Byzantine Christ, I think it's called. And I forget the name of the author, but it's an Oxford University Press book. He has a last name that's in Greek. Anyway, The Byzantine Christ. It's a great study of shade, different kinds of monophysitism. Okay, so where are we going to anchor things? Well, in affirming with the Council of Ephesus that there's one person subsisting in two natures. So, whether the union of the incarnate word took place... Oh, sorry, no, he starts first with against monophysitism. Whether the union of the incarnate word took place in the nature. I answer that to make this question clear, we must consider what is nature. Now, it's to be observed that the word nature comes from nativity, or being given birth to, or coming into being through a process. Hence the word was used, first of all, to signify the begetting of living beings, which is called birth or sprouting forth. Afterwards, the word nature was taken to signify the principle of this begetting, and because in living things the principle of generation is an intrinsic principle or form, this word nature was further employed to signify any intrinsic principle of motion. Now Aquinas often, when he uses the word nature, means the same thing as he means as essence or natural form, although form and matter together can form, are the essence of a thing. The essence of a man is both body and soul and his form is his body, his soul. But nature is often used in the same way as essence. Now we've already talked about this a little bit, so I'm not gonna to return to it. But the point is that nature is a rather broad word for Aquinas, but it tends to mean the essential constitutive principles of a thing. Now this principle is either form or matter, and sometimes form is called nature, sometimes matter. Like you could say my soul is my, it's of my nature to have a human soul, it's of my nature to have a human body. And because the end of generation in, which that, in that which is generated is the essence of the species, which the definition signifies, this essence of the species is called the nature. And thus Boethius defines it. All right, so he's just basically doing some ground clearing about the etymology and trying to say that when you talk about the nature of man in Christ or the nature of God in Christ, you're talking about the species of the divinity or the species of the humanity. Now, if we take nature this way, it's impossible that the union of the incarnate word took place in nature uh, for one thing is made of two, uh, sorry, for one, one thing is made of two or more in three ways. Now here are three mixtures to your question. Aquinas is simply trying to explore what he considers the metaphysical possibilities of nature mixture. Frankenstein's, tertium quids, neither man nor God. Or maybe just God, but the man is like an accidental leftover. First, from two complete things which remain in their perfection, this can only happen 
to those whose form is composition, order, or figure, as a heap is made of many stones brought together without any order, but solely with juxtaposition. Now notice, what is, if we go back to our categories we were talking about earlier, when we were talking about fame, this is to simply say that the stones are arranged by relations. There's a relationality between this heap, the different stones and this heap of stone. There's no substantial union. The two stones lying on top of each other are not one in being. So if you go this way, you're just saying that there's a man, Jesus, and then there's the eternal word, and they're next to each other by a habitual relation. Then you're really in Nestorianism, actually. You don't want to say that. It's not an incarnation. And a house is made of stones and beams arranged in order and fashioned to a figure. And in this way, some said the union was by manner of confusion, which is without order, or by manner of commensuration, which is with order. But this cannot be. First, because composition, nor order, nor figure is a substantial form, but accidental. That's the argument I just made. A relation is just an accidental union. Like, what's your, like, you say, I, you buy a new car. You become, you, you know, you, you, you leave Rome, you decide you're going to become a lawyer, you know, and you, you're not going to, you're not going to do theology for the rest of your life. Alas, we all, we all, we're all very tearful. And, but, but, you know, you, you get into some law, in disreputable law school at a place that's not Princeton. And you go to one of those two places, and then you make stacks of money, and then you buy your Maserati at the age of 30, just like some terrible parable. And then you, and then you look at your spouse, because let's, let's, let's at least presume you're virtuous enough to get married, and you say one day, I am my car. I am my car. <laughs> and your spouse says to you, no, honey, you studied Aristotelian metaphysics back in the day with Father Thomas Joseph White, and you know that you only have a habitual relation to your car as an object of love, but there's not a substantial union. And so you don't want to say that that's the relationship between Christ's divinity and his humanity. Like it's just an accidental union. Like habitually, this man is very inspired by the word. That's the relationship between Mother Teresa and Jesus. She's not Jesus, but she's deeply, habitually related to him through grace. Okay. And hence it would follow that the union incarnation would not be essential but accidental, which we will disprove in Article 6, the famous Article 6. Second, because thereby we should not have an absolute unity but a relative only. See, relational. Third, because the form of such is not nature but an art, like the heap of stones, the form of a house. And Christ is not just an art artifact. He's, he's and somehow mysteriously one substantial being. He's not a heap of divinity and humanity. He's like you touched concretely in your judgment of faith. If you're looking at Jesus of Nazareth, you're looking at God made man who is one being. He is one personal being. The hand of Christ is the hand of God. Not the metaphorical hand of God. The literal flesh and blood hand of our Lord who is God. So there's not a heap of things. There's one thing there. The incarnate word. Son of God made man. Second, one thing is made up of several things, perfect and changed, but a mixture is made up of its elements, and in this way, some have said that the union of the incarnation was brought by manner of combination. It's like the mixing of concrete. Take a little divinity, you pour it in the churner. Take a little humanity, you pour it in the churner. Start churning up the concrete, and you get a divine human mixture of elements. That cannot be the case. First, because the divine nature is altogether immutable, as we've argued in the first part, so it cannot be changed into something else since it is incorruptible. Right, so the divinity of Christ doesn't become human. It's an error to say the incarnation happens because God in his deity and his divine nature becomes a human nature. Now, if you read a little bit of Hegel, you can go down that road. That, that, that road exists in the modern world that God can, by a kind of free dis of his own eternal essence, 
self-identify in his very being as man. And then you start saying God takes on human attributes and seeds or empties himself of divine attributes. Aquinas and the Catholic tradition teaches that that's an error. Second, because what is mixed is of the same species with none of the elements. For flesh differs in species from any of the other elements. And thus Christ would be of the same nature neither with his father nor his mother. Right? So if you mix them together and you form a third thing, this is like the tertium quid model, then Jesus is no longer one of us because his divine nature has now been mixed into something else. He's no longer one with God the Father and the Spirit because his divine nature has been mixed into something else. So now he's no longer truly God and truly man. He's a former God and a former man who's now some tertium quid. Third, because there can be no mingling of things widely apart, for the species of one of them is absorbed if we put a drop of water into a flagon of wine. And hence, since the divine nature infinitely exceeds the human nature, there would be no mixture, but the divine nature alone would remain. Now, that is exactly what Eutyches argued. He said, the image I think he used was, when the human nature is joined with the divine nature, it is this honey, a drop of honey cast into the sea. The human nature is just usurped into the sea of the divinity. And so you only have one nature after the union, which is a divine nature. And the human nature is like assimilated. So once, as soon as God becomes human, the human nature is just like in Mary's womb, already a divine thing. That's the heresy that's condemned. Third, a thing is made up of things not mixed or changed, but imperfect as man is made up of a soul and a body. Now, this is the idea that the humanity would be like the body and the divinity would be like the soul, and together they'd form one nature. This cannot be because each nature, the divine and human, has a specific perfection. See, if it was like that, then Christ wouldn't really be perfect man and perfect God. The two of them together would form some other perfect nature. So, like, you, you know, if you say, well... Listen, Father, I'm perfect just as a body. I don't need a spiritual soul. Or you say, Father, I'm so spiritual. I'm perfect as a spiritual soul. I don't need a body. This is, these are terrible metaphysical errors. We are, we are embodied spiritual animals. Our spiritual personal animals, spiritual bodies, whatever you want to say. The point is, you need a body and soul to be a human being in a full and complete sense. But... That means that you, if you have a body and soul, you really are a complete human being. But Christ has a body and soul and is a complete human being in his human nature by virtue of his body and soul. Not because he's a body and a soul mixed with yet another thing, which is the divinity, to become a third nature. Because then he would no longer be God or man, but some church and quid. And he says then it can't be quantitative mixture because the divinity is not quantitative. And then lastly, he said, third, because Christ would exist neither in human nature nor in the divine nature. Okay. He's taking the church's teaching. Sorry, what was the, uh, on the contrary. Notice that on the contrary, he just starts with the teaching of the Council of Chalcedon. We confess that in these latter times, the only begotten Son of God appeared in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, meaning separation, without without division or separation. So there really is a union of the two, it's substantial, and there really is a distinction of the two, without confusion. So he's just commenting, like, how do we understand the, the creedal teaching that Jesus is truly human and truly divine? So having excluded the confusion in nature, he's now going to ask, in what or how are they united? And this is where you get the answer of the hypostatic union. Whether the union of the incarnate word took place in the person. 
On the contrary, this is going to the argument from authority because we're in theology and we take our first principles from the creed. We read in the Synod of Chalcedon, we confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son and Word of God. Therefore, the union took place in that person. So, to Andre's query. See, it, it's easy to start with the exclusion that Jesus is not two personal subjects. He's not a human person, agent, and a, a human agent, and a divine agent. He's one person who is the Son of God. And then you really have to face the, the problem. If there are eternal tri triune persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then there are human persons that are created, he has to, if he's only one agent subject, one subjective agent, one personal agent, or one personal subject, is he divine or human? And the church teaches he's the pre-existent divine subject who became human. And so we're not talking about a man who became very holy at the upper echelon. He passed Mother Teresa, he passed Little Flower, he passed Bernard of Clairvaux, and he became the God-man. That's not it. It's not a difference of degree. It's a descent of divi the divine person into our human condition. God became man, and it's a difference of kind. He's not a saint. He's not a big saint, a greatest saint, a highest saint. He is God become human. So he's unique. No one else is God become human. There's just Jesus and everybody else. Okay, so I answered that. Now this is a really important, sim somewhat simple but very important article. I answered that person has a different meaning from nature. For nature designates a specific essence. And if nothing was found to be added to what belongs to the notion of species, there'd be no need to distinguish the nature from the suppositum of the nature, which is the individual subsisting in this nature. Now, notice we've just used this funny word. Suppositum can be a word you use in logic, and it would be like the subject to which you attribute everything. So to go back to the metaphysical specimen, say Caroline is a substance. I've attributed being substantial to Caroline who's become a figure of persecution in these classes. <laughs> or I say, Caroline has the quality of being able to play the piano, which is a pure hypothesis. Is it true? No. Anyway, so I attribute piano playing, in this case falsely, to a suppositum. What is the logical placeholder to which I attribute being a substance and a piano player? The subject or suppositum of logic. Now, to that logical idea of the suppositum, there it correlates an ontological idea of a subject in the reality itself. The being to whom I attribute this nature, this quality, these quantities, these relations, and so forth. So the suppositum is the concrete individual. So here's the thing. Each of us here is identically human. Not in every respect. Some people play the piano and some people don't. Okay. Some people eat chocolate, some people don't. But all of us, in terms of essence, are human, equal, you might say, but identically, to say it even more perfectly. We are of the very same species, essentially. Basis of human rights and all that. But more fundamentally, a deep ontological truth. But each of us is also a different suppositum, that is to say, a different individual realization of human nature. So Andreish human nature is different from that of any other person, even those called Andre. Okay? And you know, Will's instantiation of human nature is individual to him. And so in each of us, there's an individual realization of human nature that is not existent in anyone else. 
So we're all made, to speak in theological terms, in the image of God, and we all have the same essential nature. We're all identically made in the image of God in that respect, but we are all each, to use another kind of phrase, modal expressions, modal expressions, individual modal expressions of human nature. Each of us is an individual human being in whom the way of being human is expressed in an individual and unique way. You could put it this way, no one is human the way you are human. No one is human the way Paul is human. No one is the way human the way Peter is human. No one is human the way Rebecca or Mary Magdalene is human. Now where we're going with this is it's also true to say that no one is human in the way Jesus is human. He has the same human nature as us, but in his case, the individual suppositum who subsists is the eternal person of the word. So when I look at Paul or Peter or Rebecca or Mary Magdalene or you, I see an individual instantiation of a human person. But when I look at Christ, I see a human being, having a human nature like us, who is in also distinct in his modal expression of what it means to be human. But in his case, when I look at what it is to be human in a particular way, I also see that that particular way of being human is the, is the way of being human of God, the eternal Son of God. What is the difference between a person that is human and a human person? There's a huge difference in the way I'm using language. Because a person who is human can be, also, can be a divine or human person. But a, per, a human person can only be a creature. And Christ is not a creature, so he's not a human person. But he is a divine person who is human, in, in, in every respect human like us. The problem is if you call him also a human person, then you have to ask, is he a divine person? And the answer to that is either yes or no. If it's no, then we've denied that he is the pre-existent word of God and contradicted scripture and he's no longer really God made man. If we say yes, he's a divine person and he's a human person, then I say, isn't there then two persons? And now we're in Nestorianism because we have two subjects who are substantially distinct. Do you have to admit that there are two separate? Well, you're hard pressed not to avoid that conclusion. Okay. If a person is an individual substance of a natural kind that is human, because part of what it is to be a person is to be a singular substance. So is Christ two substances or one? If he's two substances, a divine substance that's the word and a human substance that's man, then it seems we're back to the theory of the relationship. He's like, you know, the man Jesus is one substantial person who's in a deep spiritual relationship with the divine person of the word is another. And so then it's like you and I, you and I are distinct in being from the word, the eternal word of God, and he enlightens us through faith. What would really be the difference between us and Jesus of Nazareth? It means now that it looks a lot like... Now, there are, there are other attempts to talk about this down that, that go down that road, some of which have been condemned by the church even in recent times. And if you look at this book I mentioned, The Incarnate Lord, in the first chapter, I look at uh, a certain line of thinking that comes from... It just happens to be the case, the Fran Franciscan school, from <laughs> Alexander of Hales and then the Dun Scotus that gets re-presented in the 20th century by people like Rahner and then explored in very more experimental ways by a couple of contemporary Jesuits who have come under censorship from the church because effectively what they say is the man Jesus is a different entity or being than the eternal word. And they, they follow that line, they follow this line thinking there's got to be two different persons and they end up with there being two different beings. So Jesus is not God in the end. Or at least he's a kind of a human being who's becoming God eventually or becoming closer to God than anyone else. This, and so it's not as uh, absent as you might think. But I mean, just as, just as a matter of clarity, 
it's, this is not a Thomistic position. So what I'm talking about, it's not a, it's not a, it's not, it, this is actual the dogma of the church. So if you say that Jesus is a human person, you are saying something the church has condemned. So then you can say, well, I don't get that. Okay, that's normal. You're doing theology. You start to work on it. But, and so having the intellectual difficulties are helpful, are important, because they didn't, you know. But the point is just to know that, like, there is a line there that line, the church says. Now, how do we, that doesn't mean I get intelligibility from just knowing that alone. It's hard for me not to take that and look at Jesus as a sort of animated human robot if he's not a human yeah, that's Rahner's that's argument. And in my chapter, I take that argument on and try to give the sustained argument against it. I can send you by PDF if you want, at least that chapter. Um, because I take on the whole idea. That, that it's actually worth reading Rahner on it and then thinking about that claim. Because the whole Eastern tradition is that Jesus' human na- nature is the instrument of his divine person. And then Rahner says that very venerable tradition is actually making Jesus a divine robot or kind of a puppet show. And this has got to be wrong. I mean, if, if, he, if he's right, then, then the whole ancient tradition is, is problematic. Mm-hmm. So, but that's squarely the, the issue to face. Okay. Um, um, we're gonna look at replied objection two, which deals with your objection. But let me go ahead and take the next question. Yeah, um, Emerson. So if we want to understand Christ as a divine person who is human and not as a human person who is divine, in what sense does his divine nature not dominate Great question. That's going to be really what he looks at. It's going to totally respect it, actually. The divine nature, God can become human in such a way as to not only respect everything human, but actually Jesus is the most human of us all. And so his like human freedom, spontaneity, uh, wisdom, virtue, activity, perfection is all more than those of other people. So the union of God and man in Christ doesn't diminish his humanity. It actually augments the modal expression of, of human perfection. But if we're to say that if Christ and I are just as human as one another? Yes. With regards to I mean, essence. Yeah, but what, what additional information is conveyed by saying that I'm a human person and he's just a person who's human? Like in what sense? It, it seems to suggest that I'm like more human in some sense. Well, okay, so let's Let's go to reply objection two after we finish the article because I think it will treat both your objections a little bit. That would be the next place to go logically because Aquinas takes your objections on immediately. Um, but keep the question so we can come back to it. I mean, you have to get into the metaphysics of personhood in depth in Aquinas to do this. He treats it more in the trees on the Trinity first and it can't really be done in 10 minutes but we can allude to some of it. And I, I have to say, having spent a long time with it, I find it very satisfying. But the questions you raise are entirely legitimate, and they have to be taken on. And there's different ways to do it. One of them is in this reply objection too. Can I interject? Yeah. Yeah. I think you already said this, but don't forget that the first time this hits you, if you haven't heard it before, that there's an element of the light of faith which will open this progressively over a life. So it takes time to fully grasp what the church is teaching. It's not only intellectual. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to be said is the hypostatic union is not entirely clairvoyant to us simply as a matter of natural reason. So we're trying to understand how to think about a mystery that we can think about over the course of our lifetime and how to not think about it wrongly and then how to think about it rightly. But what you're concerned about is the reality and integrity of his human nature and whether we're more human than he is. And the church teaches that he's not only integrally human, but he's more human than we are. But he's not a human person. And we'll come to this next. Uh, just, just keep going. 
Some people think this is, some people think that Aquinas is a little bit monophysite. That is the Scotist argument, for example. That Aquinas is a little bit monophysite, and you need a new, an another way to talk about this. Um, and then Scotists look very, very Nestorian. <laughs> and that's, that's not, that, 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 I mean, that's a very common uh, objection to Scotism. But th th this is, again, where there's a kind of sharpening of the wits by comparison to different schools. Um, okay. I'm skipping down a little bit. And what is said of a suppositum is to be applied to a person in rational or intellectual creatures. For a person is nothing other than an individual substance of a rational nature, according to Boethius. So that's basically what I was saying. You know, each of us has the same human nature, but we're an individual um, substance, and therefore a different modal expression of human nature. Therefore, whatever adheres to a person is united to it in, uh, is united to it in person, whether it belongs to nature or not. Hence, if the human nature is not united to God, the word, in person, it is no wise united to him, and thus belief in the incarnation is altogether done away with, and the Christian faith wholly overturned. You see how strong he's going there, that it's got to be the person, the word, who has this human nature. Therefore, inasmuch as the word has a human nature united to him, which does not belong to his divine nature, it follows that the union took place in the person, the word, and not in the nature. We've already argued that it can't be a fusion of two natures. Now we need to argue that it's somehow substantial, it's not an accidental union. So the only place we can make the union is in the person. The person of the Son exists eternally as God, and he begins to subsist in time as one who is wholly human in body and soul in the womb of Mary. That embryo in the womb of Mary is the eternal Son of God, the Word of God, God himself dwelling in our human nature. And if you point to that, say, who is that in the womb of Mary? That is the eternal Son of God, personally present now in human nature. Now, notice objection two. Objection two at the beginning. Further, Christ's human nature has no less dignity than ours, but personality belongs to dignity, as two people at this table have rightly emphasized. By personality, does it mean being a human person? Well, it's interesting. He, he, does, he does, I think, but he doesn't use the word personhood. He uses the word personalitas, which he's not used up to now. So hold that thought. Because kind of, I think personality is a kind of unfolding of personal attributes of the human nature. I'm going to come back to this. But personality belongs to dignity, as was stated above. And, since our, and hence, since our human nature has its proper personality, much more reason has there, was there that Christ should have his proper personality. Right? So here, White has said there's, a, only, there's no human person. There's only a divine person subsisting in human nature. But it's proper to each person to have their own personality. But if Jesus isn't got a human personhood, if he's not a human person, then he can't have his own personality. So he looks like a robot, and he's something less than us, and he has less dignity than we have. But we've been told he has more dignity than we have, or has equal and more in some respects. So that's, this all seems too, too confused. Reply objection two. Personality pertains of necessity to the dignity of a thing and to its perfection, so far as it pertains to the dignity and perfection of that thing to exist by itself which is understood by the word person. Okay, so the first thing he does is say, see, personality here is not the Myers-Briggs or like what the psychologists study, okay? Personality here is a deeper philosophical conception. It's the unfolding of your spiritual faculties of intellect and will as expressive of your personal identity and of your substantial autonomy. So I'll go back and say it again. 
personality is your intellect and will. So spiritual faculties we've talked about unfolding in its particular exercise. Carolyn decides after visiting Rome to learn to play the piano so that all the examples will become true. And so she develops that facet of her personality. This is not like psychological personality. This is habitual capacities to do this or that. It's the modal configurations of spirit as it works itself out in the course of your life. Before he was an accountant, Will never really thought about the importance of numbers. But after he abandoned philosophy, having left Princeton, and became an accountant, he, his whole personality became like a Dickens character. <laughs> and he lived happily ever after. Or not. We'll see. Anyway, the point is the personality is like this deep structure of the spiritual capacity of the intellect and will unfolding in time. And what's it unfolding from? Your personal autonomy as an agent. And that's part of what it is to be a human person, to have a, a spiritual autonomy and then to explore and unfold your personality through all the agencies of intellect and will through the course of your life. Okay, so that pertains to your dignity. So you're saying that should be in Christ. Now it is a greater dignity, this is the key move. Are you ready? Now it is a greater dignity to exist in something nobler than oneself to exist by oneself. Hence the human nature of Christ has greater dignity than ours from the very fact that in us being existent by itself as its own personality. But in Christ it exists in the person of the word. I'm coming back to this. For to perfect the species belongs to the dignity of a form, yet the sensitive part in man, on account of its union with the nobler form, which perfects the species, is more noble than in brutes, where in itself, where it is itself the form which perfects. So let's go to the last part and then come back to the first part. So he takes an analogy from human from animals. You know, if you spend some time with complicated animals, I won't speak of these lesser beings we call cats. Let's speak of high and dignified animals like dogs. Dogs have imaginations. Dogs have memories. Dogs have emotions. Dogs are very emotional creatures. That's why they're more like us than cats, which are nihilistic creatures. Okay, these are not, these are not official teachings of the Catholic Church I'm saying right now. These are just my own... My own reflective, not even Aquinas, this is my own theological opinions. Right. So, animals, like let's talk, let's talk about other very noble animals. These porpoises, they teach to do these fantastic tricks who travel in schools and communicate with each other and all that. Or the, the gorilla who presses the organ keypad when it wants a banana. Okay, these guys have memory, internal memory, they have sensate powers. Okay, there's a lot going on in them. But now, if you join those guys, if you join that principle to human spirit, personalitas of will and intellect, they can become Michelangelo. And then the Sistine Chapel becomes possible. Right? You get pictures of, uh, that are created by an animal. Michelangelo is, an, is a, fine, a very fine animal. And he could paint because he was an animal, unlike an angel. And he could paint all these things using his imagination and his emotions, these passionate pictures. But now it's all invested with deep spiritual depth of intellect and will. And this is true of things like, like language, music and art, technology, uh, all the stuff, it's like all the human rituals of clothing and custom, <clears throat> politics as a way we ordain our life together corporeally, traffic lights, you know. 
Our world is a world in which we navigate as animals, but animals now no, in, rendered ennoble and dignified by the principle of spirit. And what he's saying is that mutatis mutandis, by an analogy, there's something like this in that principle of personalitas in Christ. As man, Christ has this natural principle of autonomy and this expression of human spirit through personality, activities of personality of intellect and will. But now, because the word subsists in this human nature, there's a deeper autonomy, there's this deeper dignity, the deeper dignity of being God and man, so that when you look at the, the, the autonomy, the ontological autonomy of who is this singular being here acting in and through these human actions, the answer is this singular being here in his autonomy acting through human actions is the God-man. It is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And all that expression of personalitas is not only present, everything we can have as human personality is present in its full intellectual vitality and free spontaneity from the depths as man. But now it's expressive of God. Just like your animal nature can express human spirit in creative art, like Michelangelo, God's humanity is expressive of his personal identity as son. So Jesus' words and thoughts and human heart, movements of human heart, his desires, his mourning, his, his, his willing, everything he desires, everything he suffers, everything he does gesticularly, his walking, his speaking, all his teaching, his imaginative parables, all his human words, all of that can be expressive of the eternal identity of the Son of God in his unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, in and through the personalitas of Jesus' human actions, his human willing, his human thinking, now expressing his personhood, which is that of the eternal word of God. So that's kind of the claim about where the mystery is. And he's, notice he's saying he is more perfectly human than us with regards to the specific features of personalitas but now the modal expression of that is the modal expression of God in his human life, living a fully human life among us to express to us who God is personally. You said that the personalitas is the intellect and will expressing itself. That's my reading. This okay. is why people like me exist, to be footnotes to Thomas Aquinas. Well, I'm, I'm, giving an I'm giving a kind of interpretation, okay. but yes, you have a question. So if, it's, if that's what it is, then for Jesus to have... To, to be a divine person, not a human person, does that mean that his intellect and will are only divine? Does not have no, no. You know, he has a completely, fully human intellect. Two intellects and two wills. So the next condemnation that comes of monophysitism is called, there's another heresy that comes, it's called monothelitism and monoerganism, which right. claims it's one activity that's fully, only divine, and one will and intellect, which is fully. So, so that's he condemned. Has a human intellect and a human will. Yeah. And if this he human intellect and will does express itself from his, what's the missing piece that? Oh. Yeah. Go ahead, sister. You, so, okay. This is going to be different. This is the thing we always do in class. Somehow you might be assuming that free choice is not compatible to be simultaneous with God's action, His willing and your willing at the same time. One is free and one is not. But that's not the way God works. And this is usually the way we approach it, is assuming that before we even start. Right. And Aquinas teaches the opposite. And it has deep bearing on this treatise. Because he's going to argue, the church teaches that there is in Christ, 
divine wisdom as God and divine willing as God and human wisdom and understanding as man and human willing and obedience as man. Right, so he has, a, he has, a divi has divine knowledge and divine will and human knowledge and human will. So then the question comes, how does the subordination work wherein he thinks and wills as man while being enlightened in his thinking and willing as man by his divine knowledge? And that's the problem of the grace of Christ as man. As man, he receives grace in virtue of his humanity so that he can understand and will as man in a completely human way in full accord with his divinity. And Aquinas is going to treat that in this treatise. So I've, I've, I've spilled a lot of ink on this subject. It's in the same book. So there's, there's more about that, and I've got some articles on this too to help you see a little bit the... the, the but this is, this is, again, we're still at the level really of the fundamental dogmatic teaching. There was a man in the f fourth century who claimed that Christ had no human soul. This is Apollinarius. He said, if he's God, he doesn't need to have a human soul. Church condemned that. Then there were people who said, if, he has if, he's, if he's God and man, he has a human nature, divine nature. Okay, there's two natures, but he can't really have a free human activity or free human willing. Church condemned that. He has free human activity and free human willing. Then there are people says that, said that, you know, well, he can't really have a, a functional, ordinary human intellect because of the overwhelming power of the divine wisdom in him. Church condemned that. Okay, so he has divine wisdom and divine uh, willing and freedom, divine freedom in himself as God, and he has fully ordinary human understanding and willing as man. And then you have the problem of how those work together. How does his human nature receive from his divine nature the enlightenment and the motions of the will to invite him to do the good and to know in accordance with, with his own mission to accomplish the will of the Father. And is that taking away from his human freedom? No. Actually, Aquinas argues in this treatise later on, he is the most free of all men because he has the most perfect knowledge of the divine goodness. Yeah? So is that why, even though, is that, Christ as a child is learning. Yeah. So when Aquinas says that in question, I think nine, when Aquinas, I think nine to eleven, so forth, when Aquinas looks at the, the human knowledge of Christ, he cites that passage uh, from Luke two. He grew in stature and wisdom to argue that Christ has an agent intellect in the sense Aristotle understands it, that he conquers knowledge progressively through experience by learning through his senses, because he's fully human like us. So Jesus is a man of his own time and era speaks the language of his people, has an imagination informed by the agricultural examples around Nazareth, and is a person of his own age. And this is also a teaching of catechism of the Catholic Church, the 1992 Catechism. Because he, came, he became like us in all things but sin, he has an ordinary process of acquisition of knowledge. But Aquinas will also argue that he has extraordinary knowledge as man, not as God. As man, he has extraordinary knowledge by grace, prophecy, and the immediate vision of God. Aquinas does not think Christ lived in faith like we do. He knows he's God in a higher way. So then you get the question, you get the whole problem. There's a huge Christological world of study about the human knowledge of Jesus. Lots of articles written, lots of books written all the time. Now, how does Jesus know he's God? How does Jesus will as man in accordance with the divine will if he is himself God? 
how can he be truly human in his way of thinking, in his way of learning, in his way of knowing as man? And in, how can he be truly free in his way of willing as man and obeying as man if he's also God? Start by presuming it's not contradictory. It need not be contradictory. If it's happened, it's not contradictory ontologically. And then you have at least established that, it's, if it's, you know, that there's a problem or a mystery. And then you start going into the mystery and thinking about what would it mean for a man to know in a fully human way as a, as a member of his own culture, thinking through the terms, images, and symbols of his own early, you know, early Second Temple Judaism culture to think about himself as God and to know he's God. What would that mean? How would he will as man to do things in obedience to God, his Father, and in, in fact, in docility to his own divine will and to the Holy Spirit, even doing so in a fully human, free way? Right? See, that's where we're eventually going. I, I have a question about the sort of more of the metaphysics than the epistemology. How, if, if Jesus is both a created body and a created universal human nature. Well, you, but technically what you want to say is he has a created body and he has a created soul and it is a create, has a created human nature. So for one of us, the, that, you know, that nature is going to inform the body. Where is there room for the eternal divine nature to enter into that picture? Well, let me put it this way. Is the fact that God is... See, this is where... It's, it's good to give you an intro to the first two questions of every part, but this is why if you've worked on the Trinity and the, on, and the attributes of God in the first part, the third part's a lot easier. See? So there's... I mean... Okay. But let me, put, let me respond to your question this way. The fact that God has created the world, does it add any... Does it... Does God's being present in the world either threaten God or the world in a zero-sum game ontologically. So if God's really present, for example, just as creator in sustaining us in being, we must almost not exist because we'd be in competition with God. Or if uh, God wants to give us space to be and exist, he has to kind of retreat back from creation and leave us free, like some of the medieval Jewish mystics thought. Right? These are both erroneous ideas. We're actually only able to be sustained in being and to exist in our own free spontaneity and fullness of being and human personality because God is sustaining us in being and is omnipresent to all things as creator. It's because God's present that we can be. Right? So for God to then add to this a new presence by being human is not really very hard for him. And it doesn't actually have to in any way threaten that prior relationship of, you might call it, coextensive presentiality. That God can be present to all that we are, and we can be present in all that we are without there being any rivalry. So likewise, God can become human without there being any deep rivalry between his human nature and his being God. He doesn't have to change to become human, to subsist as man in his divine, divine nature. And he doesn't have to change what human nature is to become human. Yeah, well... I mean, I did talk about this earlier, the idea that there's first primary and secondary causality. So, like, God is the first cause of all that is, but because he sustains creatures, precisely because he creates beings that are themselves genuine causes and sustains them in being, they are secondary causes. We say secondary because they come from God, but they are genuine causes. So, for example, in the evolutionary process, you can have little critters picking each other off and the natural selection process taking place and 
perfections is being accrued to some of them through, you know, millions of years of genetic, you know, mutation, all that. And they're really causing all that process with all the accidental random, you know, mutations that happen between them. And God is sustaining the whole thing in being as the primary cause of it. So everything exists, both the secondary causes and, and God causing the secondary causes, and there's no competition between them. And so it's an error to think that they have to, you're in a zero-sum game. Like, if there's a long-standing cosmic and evolutionary process, then God doesn't exist. Or if God exists, there can't be a long-standing cosmic and evolutionary process. It's, a co it's the contrary. Because God exists, there can be a long-standing con uh, evolutionary cosmic process. And because we see the existence of the long-standing cosmic and evolutionary process, we know God exists. Because who else is sustaining it in being? There's no rivalry between the secondary causes and the primary causes. So if God also then became one of those animals, happening to be a human one, he became a human animal, then he can do so without in any way being a rival to the free sort of structures, the full, the full integrity of the structures of that created nature. So then in Christ you would have like first and second cause kind of both right there. Yeah, yeah. And then you have, and then you have the relationship between them which is like you and I have a relationship to, to God as our cause of being in the order of nature, but it's different in Christ because in him, the human nature subsists in the cause. He calls it, Aquinas calls it a conjoined instrument rather than a separated instrument. And Aquinas actually says in some way, broadly conceived, and he, of course he exists before the age of Newton, so he doesn't think about machines the way we do. He says, broadly conceived, everything in the world is an instrument of God that through which the divine providence is working itself out. But that could be like in a kind of organic way, like a long, you know, like a, a large living body or something. And God is expressing himself through all the works of the, you know, the, you could say the major cosmic ecosystem of all things is expressive in some way of God's wisdom, goodness, and glory. But he says, in Christ, the instrument is conjoined to the source. This man here is subsistently the, the word of God subsisting in a human, human flesh, in a human soul, in a human nature. All right. We're going to move to Article Three. Did the did the incarnate word did the sorry did the did the union of the word incarnate take place in the supposum or hypostasis? He says there's people who think there are two persons, two hypostases. Actually, hypostasis is softer. It's like two subsistent subjects. It doesn't even have to really mean two personalities, but two. Sub and by the way, Alexander Hales did say this. Ugh. It's so weird, because Alexander didn't know that it was a condemned position, it seems. The medievals didn't always have all the information of what the ancients had taught. This can't be true. First, because person only adds to hypostasis a determined nature, let's say rational. Basically, a hypostasis in Greek is a subsistent individual. And a subsistent individual of a rational kind is a person. A person is an individual substance of rational nature. And hence, it is the same to attribute to the human nature in Christ, a proper hypostasis and a proper person. And the Holy Father, seeing this, condemned both at the Fifth Council at Constantinople, saying anyone who seeks to introduce into the mystery of the Incarnation two subsistences or two persons, let him be anathema, for by the Incarnation of the one Holy Trinity, God the Word, the Holy Trinity received no augment of person or subsistence. There's no new person who comes to be because of the Incarnation. The Sonship is not acquired because of the Incarnation. He's eternally the Son. It's also why they taught this. He just referred to the Second Council the fifth ecumenical council was the second council of Constantinople in which they taught one of the trinity was crucified. That's a famous phrase that must be held. One of the trinity was crucified. Who was crucified? The eternal son of God, the word. One of the trinity was crucified. That's an orthodox statement. God was born in a cave. 
God died on the cross. God was nursed by the Virgin Mary. God slept in the boat. God lived in a specific, the eternal God lived in a specific time and place without ceasing to be eternal. He who is infinite was wrapped in the swaddling clothes of finitude. These are all true statements. Father's Church use all these kinds of statements. They're called communication of idioms. Aquinas goes into them later. Um, second, because if it is granted that person adds to hypostasis something in which the union can take place, this something is nothing else than a property pertaining to dignity. Accordingly, according as it is said by some that a person is a hypostasis distinguished by a property pertaining to dignity, because of the nature. Like, why is this subsisting thing got more dignity than another? The cat, the human baby, the word of God in the crib with Mary. This baby has more dignity than the other baby. The other baby has more dignity than the cat because of the nature of the thing and its hypostatic identity. If therefore the union took place in the person and not in the hypostasis, which is an absurdity, it follows that the union only took place with regards to some dignity. That's, that's taking personhood as an attribute, like a quality of the soul, again, accidental. He, he, he reads at the Council of Ephesus from Cyril, if anyone after uniting divides the subsistences in the one Christ, only joining them in a, in a union of dignity, the two hypostases, or authority or, or power, and not rather in a concourse of natural union, let him be an athman. So what Nestorius said was, you have the man Jesus and you have the word of God, and the man Jesus is indwelt by the word of God in a very deep way and therefore acquires the property of dignity. But this man alone is indwelt by the word in this very high degree. Now in that case, the dignity in question is a kind of accident, a property, quality, from being in this habitual relationship with the word like being the biggest Mother Teresa, the most holy saint. And he's saying that's not enough. The dignity is subsistent. It has to do with the very person in question. He's, this man has a higher dignity because of be, he is God. Third, because to the hypostasis alone are attributed the operations and the natural properties. Like what does Jesus do? He raises the dead. He suffers. For we say that this man reasons. When he uses the this, it's really important when Aquinas talks about the this for Christ. He says sometimes, if I say this and point my finger at Jesus, he says this later in the treatise, that this meaning, I'm attributing nature to this concrete subject. So when I say this person is, to be said, is said to be a suppositum because he underlies whatever belongs to man and receives its predication. Like we're attributing things to Caroline. What do we attribute to Christ? Raises the dead, sleeps in the boat, walks to Jerusalem, suffers on the cross, performs miracles, is one with the Father, is omnipotent, is God, is man. This man is those things. What's the this I'm referring to? Not just his nature's man. I could also say this God is human. This God is most human. Or this man is God. But the this I'm referring to is this hypostatic subject, this person who is the eternal son of God. And so we say, he says, he was born of a virgin, he suffered, he was crucified, he was buried. And then he goes on to talk about the communication of idioms, which I've given you many examples of. So now let me just um, explore this a little bit more in the next article, where he asks, this is just a, a double back a little bit, the other direction. 
After the incarnation, is the person or hypostasis composite? Now, we've just denied that there's two persons. But now he's going to talk about a composite person. Now, you and I are not composite persons. He's going to say this. It doesn't mean body and soul, composition of body and soul. He's talking about composition of human and divine natures in one person. I answer that the person or hypostasis of Christ may be viewed in two ways. First, as it is in itself, and thus it's altogether simple, even as to the nature of the word. Second, in the aspect of person or hypostasis to which it belongs to subsist in a nature, and thus the person of Christ subsists in two natures. Hence, though there is one subsisting being in him, yet there are two different aspects of subsistence or hypostasis. And hence, he is said to be a composite person inasmuch as one being subsists in two. So there's only one person in the whole history of humanity who subsists in two natures. You and I are persons, each subsisting in or as human beings having one, an, one identical nature. We are all human. We all subsist. We're all persons subsisting, having that kind of nature that is proper to each of us, that, by which we're identically human. But Jesus is a subsistent person who is both fully human and fully divine. He's a composite person in the sense that he subsists in two natures. And this is true only of him. This is a traditional claim, uh, this idea of a composite person subsisting in two natures. It's a traditional claim that you find in John Damascene, who he cites here. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge two natures, and, but one hypostasis composed from both. Composed. Composed. Made up of. Right? We, we spend all that time saying he's not a mixture, concrete. He's not, you know, composed of, con like concrete's composed. But he is composed of two natures, which are united in one subsistent person. I think John, I think John Damascene says somewhere, quoting Maximus the Confessor, we could say he is one person subsisting in two natures, or we could say he is two persons who subsist in union with each other. And to say these two things is to say the same thing. So if you say he's two natures subsisting in a composite manner, what you're saying effectively is he's one person subsisting in two natures. Now how come you guys can't, how come you guys can't all do this like right away? I mean, I should be able to like wake you up in bed in the morning. And I know you're all getting up at crack of dawn here in Italy after your pasta the night before, and I wake you up at five, and I say, his kingdom come, and I say, you know, tell me about the difference between a, a person subsisting in two natures and two persons which are composite subsisting as one person. And you say, I got that, Father, and you just like spit it out to me like I'm talking to you. Why can't you do that? Because theology is also a habitus, and just like it takes a long time to become a nuclear physicist, which I can only dream of being, or knowing enough mathematics to have a conversation with Evan. <laughs> I've been teaching this material at, like every year for 10 years to Dominicans who ask all the same questions you guys are asking, plus a lot more, and maybe sometimes more aggressively, the Dominicans that is. So, you know, you, you build up a habit and it's a way of thinking. And you get into different kinds of debates, you see different problems or weaknesses. Every theological position you, any school of thought you, you, go, you, you go into, if you become a Scotus versus a Thomas on the incarnation, you're gonna have problems because you've always got dangers. And you gotta know where the dangers and the problems are and how to correct back vis-a-vis -vis those problems and dangers and try to identify the mystery. John Henry Newman talks about, you're on, you're, has anybody here done any sailing? 
Yeah, you go out in the water and you know they, they put out, the, when you're trying to set out in the channels, they have the buoys to show you where the shoals are. And you try to stay, you have the buoy on the right, the buoy on the left, and you try not to go on the shoal. You try to stay somewhere in the middle. And Newman says the place to start theology often is to figure out what the negative, the, the negative buoy, he uses that image, the buoys are that are gonna like, uh, um, are, gonna, are, are shoals where you'd run aground. So we know we don't want to be Nestorians, and we know we don't want to be monophysites. How do we sail between the two? Well, there's different schools of thought for sailing between the two. And different people are going to sail a little bit more to the left and a little more to the right. They're going to be more worried about, you might be more worried they're Nestorian, you might be more worried they're monophysite. And, how, and some people are just going to say, look, as long as we exclude the negatives, we can stay in mystical vagueness. Now, Aquinas is not really that much a fan of mystical vagueness. But he does often know when to stop, like where to pursue the, the luminosity of the mystery and then when to leave it, let it recede into darkness. But here he's trying to basically look at how the divine personhood can be manifest to us in our human nature and, be in the most, and Jesus can really be the most human of all. And there's something distinctive about him that's not true of anyone else, which is that this person here who is God, the eternal word made man, is both truly God and truly man. And therefore his unity of person, his subsistent concrete singularity of being, there's only one being there, Jesus, is both fully human and fully divine, a composite person. And so you work out a kind of a, you know, you study theology for years, you work out a way to try to understand that mystery with Aquinas. If you did this with someone else like Newman or Rahner or Balthazar, you'll get very different results. And it's very interesting to compare them and try to figure out where the weaknesses are, the potential strategies, advantages of the different strategies while remaining within the kind of you know, boundaries of the, what I, I call it the linguistic boundaries of the mis respect of mystery. Because there's certain ways of speaking that you pass outside the, the boundaries of being able to speak the mystery rightly. So this is one of the reasons theologians exist, is to be able to have these more complex accounts. Is it making sense? Yeah. This particular article, could you draw potentially an analogy to maybe the human being being a composition of Body and soul. animal and yeah. rational natures that don't exist? No, he, they do. The fathers do make that analogy, but it's only an analogy. I mean, there's something different. So, what's different? In us being both um, body and soul, I mean, we say we're both body and soul, and and Jesus is both God and man, and we are composed of body and soul, and Jesus as a person is composed of his divinity and his humanity. That's fair. But let me just make two very important you know, observations about the disanalogy, the dissimilitude contained in the analogy. One is that in us, a body and a soul is the most important thing, is a body and a soul is uh, one, one substance. Like, I mean, I am one being who is both my body and my soul. I can't say my substance is my soul, my body is just an accident. Like, you know, some, some Augustinian medieval theologians argued that. The church condemned that position, rightly. It's not philosophically realistic. And then you've got Mr. Descartes, who says that, you know, um, we're two substances connected to the pineal gland. <laughs> that's, that's wrong. We are one being who's body and soul. And so um, it's true that Jesus is also one being, but in, so that, that analogy would hold there, right? He's one being who's both God and man. We're one being who's body and soul. But in us, the body and soul are compositely one nature. But in Christ, the, the divinity and humanity are not compositely one nature. 
So that's one disanalogy. The second is he has a body and soul, which are his human nature, which are the composite parts of his human nature. So the composition of God and man in him implies already the composition of body and soul in his humanity, which are only the composite parts of one of his composite natures. So you can start to think about how it's like and different. It's a very important traditional exercise, though. A lot of people have explored that. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read everything here, but I want to read a little more. We have a little bit more time still. I might tell you what some of them say instead of... We do need to look at Article 6, even though this... So we're doing what's called the metaphysics of the incarnation or the ontology incarnation, and question 6 is probably one of the most important. I mean, I, I don't know quite how to do this fast, but the point is there were three views of the incarnation in the Lombard, Peter Lombard's sentences that Aquinas commented, everybody commented. And Aquinas came to hold after... Anal he, so Aquinas went up to Orvieto to work in the papal court when he was in his like uh, mature period. And he found all these old documents of records of councils, and he became much more acutely aware of what Nestorianism was, the idea of two persons or two, two, two substances. And he became convinced that a lot of his Western confreres who had not studied this material, as indeed they had not, were actually, actually Nestorian and were heretical. That's very rare for Aquinas to call someone a heretic or to say that a position is heretical. But he actually is really strong here in saying, like, some of the opinions that are in the Lombard as possible opinions that some people trade in are just actually, frankly, heretical. There's like been a forgetfulness of orthodoxy. So you see him like pursuing that in this um, in this important article. So he looks at various ways to go wrong. Let me just start the first paragraph. In it, I answer that in evidence of this question, we must know. Okay, is the union accidental? as opposed to substantial. Aquinas is going to say the union is substantial. There's one substance or one concrete, it, that just means it's a one concrete being. Like remember I've been talking about like, you know, Caroline's not a bundle of atoms accidentally configured. She is a substantial unity and so are you or I. I'm sorry Mr. Hume, you're wrong. I'm sorry you bundle theorists. We don't agree with you. We are subsistent, substantial persons. Jesus also is just one thing, one being, who is God and man. He's not an accidental relation between a man and the word. He is the word made flesh, the word made human, who is this concrete substance here. That's what's at stake in humans. I answer that in evidence of this question, we must know that two heresies have arisen with regards to the mystery of the union of the two natures. The first is confused, the first confused the natures, Eutyches, who held that from the two natures one resulted, so that they confessed Christ to be from two natures, which were distinct before the union, but not in two natures, the distinction coming after the union, coming to an end. The second was the heresy of Nestorius and Theodore of Suestia, who separated the persons, for they held the person of the Son to be distinct from the person of the Son of Man. They said they were, now here, this is the important part, they said the two were mutually united. Okay, so here we have Nestorius. We have a man, Jesus, and we have the eternal person, the Son, and how are they united? They're united accidentally in these ways. First, by indwelling. Inasmuch as the word of God dwelt in the man as in a temple. That's the way the word of God dwells in Mother Teresa, by grace. She is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Second, by unity of intention. Inasmuch as the will of the man was always in agreement with the will of the word of God. Okay, that's what's called moral union. 
You're so closely united in intention with God, you're morally united to him, like iron in the fire. Third, by operation, in as much as they said the man was the instrument of the word of God. So everything he does, he does in accord with the operations of the divine will, but he's not himself God. Fourth, by greatness of honor, inasmuch as all honor shown to the Son of God was equally shown to the Son of Man on account of his union with the Son of God. Like, so God is so close to this man here, we should show him the same honor we show God. Fifth, by equivocation of speech, the communication of names, inasmuch as we say that this man is God and the Son of God. Now, this, it's plain that these modes imply an accidental union. So, I mean, strictly speaking, if you go down those roads, Jesus is not God. He's just a really holy man who always does what God wants. But some more recent masters at the University of Paris, thinking to avoid these heresies through ignorance of the texts of the church, fell into them. For some conceded one person in Christ, but maintained there's still two hypostases, Alexander Hales, or two supposita saying that a man composed of body and soul was from the beginning of his conception assumed by the word of God. So first you had a man, and then the word of God assumed him or came into very close proximity to him. You can imagine the, the, the sort of way this sometimes gets imagined in our contemporary ages. Jesus was an ordinary man until he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was united to the word of God. That's a pure assumptionist theology. Totally heretical. And this is the first opinion set down by the master. But others desiring keeping the unity of person, because there's only one person who's God, held that the soul of Christ was not united to the body of Christ, but that these two were mutually separated and were united to the word of God accidentally. So now, this is like cowboy hat and overalls. Think cowboy hat and overalls. So my person, my physical, my body, this is a noun, this is a little metaphor. My body is the, is the eternal word of God, and I'm going to go and cloak myself in humanity. So I put on a soul, which is my cowboy hat, and I put on my body, which is my overalls, my human body, and the two don't really unite to each other. So there's one person in that case, the eternal word of God, but he just kind of cloaked himself in a soul and a body, but they're not united to each other. That is totally goofy. This is the third opinion the master sets down. But both these opinions fall into the heresy of Nestorius. I mean, what he's saying is basically, guys, there's a lot less wiggle room than we thought. The first opinion, the third opinion, nobody really held in Aquinas' view, age, but the first opinion is very commonly held. And in fact, <laughs> Scotus defends a version of it. He says that what, basically there's, a, there's two substances, the, the, the man, Jesus, and the word of God, but they're habitually related, they're united by, united by a kind of quasi-substantial habit. That's if I understand Scotus correctly, which may be not the case, but I think that that's basically an accidental union through, hab, through habitual relations. You get a full-on human being there, but you don't get a fully-on human being who really is the subsistent word of God. At least that's the concern. Okay, look at the bottom. Now, the Catholic faith, holding the mean before the aforesaid positions, does not affirm that the union of God and man took place in the essence or nature, nor in something accidental. Whoa, okay. So, what the Monophysites got right is, there's one concrete being. Jesus of Nazareth is not two beings. He's one being who's the person of the word. What they got wrong was they thought that meant they needed to say there's one nature. 
Because if you're one substance, you have one nature. That's true in all of us. In all of us, we have one substance and one nature. We're one substantial being, we're one individual, one individual person, and we have one nature, which is human nature. So the monophysites are in that way better, because I think there's one concrete person. But they think the union that allowed there to be one concrete person who's God and man took place in the nature, but in fact, it only takes place in the person and it's a distinguished and there's a distinction of nature. So there is one subsistent being, one concrete being who is Jesus of Nazareth. He is fully human and fully divine. The union does not take place in the, in the natures. He has two distinct natures. He's truly still human, he's truly still divine after the union, but he's only one concrete person. And hence in the fifth council, we read, since the unity may be understood in many ways, those who follow the impiety of Apollinarius and Eutyches, professing the destruction of natures, of what came together, destroying both natures, confess a union by mingling. But the followers of Theodore and Astorius, maintaining division, introduce a union of purpose. In other words, the man, and the man Jesus and the eternal word are only united by common intentions or moral union of purpose. But the Holy Church of God, rejecting the impiety of both these treasons, they have strong stuff. The Father of the Church is not for the faint of heart. These guys were combatants. Confesses a union of the Word of God with flesh by composition, which is in subsistence. There's a composition of divine and human nature. He's both human and divine, and he's only one subsistent person. You know, you can go through life, basically, once you get your mind around that a little bit, understanding the incarnation just, just there, and you, you've got a lot. I mean, if you get to that, you've got a lot. Of course, you've got more than most lay people, but you only have the minimum for what a Catholic intellectual needs. I'm sorry to say. You can't just study the natural law and not know anything about the hypostatic. You've got to study the mysteries. And the Trinity is like this, too. And so is grace. You've got to know some basic stuff if you want to really be a Catholic intellectual. But if you kind of get your mind around question two a little bit and you kind of start to see the inscape of it, you're doing pretty well. He doesn't, like, this is not meant to dissolve the mystery. It's meant to identify where it is or locate it. I'll just tell you about the other articles. Is the, Article 7, is the union of the divine nature and the human nature anything created? Yeah. Could you clarify how union could take place at the level of personhood to not nature when we seem to define personhood as a kind of nature? Personhood is a modal realization of a nature. So that's to say it's a certain individual realization of a human nature. So the eternal son, the eternal, it's interesting, it's a great question. What the, the whole notion of personhood and nature goes up into the Trinity in ways I have not even mentioned. But just now to mention it, because the only way really to respond to your question, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in nature and they are each God. And not only do they each have the same divine nature in essence, they have the same divine nature in individual being. They are all the one God. But they each are different personal modal realizations of subsistence of the one divine nature. So being God, the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. They are all the one God. But it, the divine nature subsists in a paternal mode in the Father, in he who generates the Son inspires the Spirit. The divine nature subsists in the Son in a filial mode as he who is eternally begotten of the Father as his word and wisdom. 
And the divine nature subsists in a, in a personal, specific way, or personal modal way in the Holy Spirit, in a spirated mode, as the love spirated from the Father and the Word, eternally. Now what happens in the incarnation is that the Son, who subsists eternally as God, unchangingly, eternally, the second person of the Trinity, begins to personally subsist not only as God, but without changing his perfection of being as God, begins to be present now in a new way as subsisting personally as man. So that the modal realization of his human nature by which he expresses his, his human nature, which he has in common with us, in a personal way as the personal nature of the Son, is the same modal realization by which he expresses the divine nature eternally in his way of being God as Son. Or I could probably say it best the other way around. The way, the personal mode of being of the Son eternally as God, that's say being the second person begotten of the Father and with the Father spiriting the Spirit, its property in the Son is now expressed in a modal way in human nature. As the man who is eternally, is now, sorry, not eternally, but humanly, humanly in his human thoughts, in his human willing, in his human gestures, in his human actions, and his human suffering, relative to the Father as he from whom he comes, and relative to the Spirit as he whom he sends. And so in Jesus' thinking and willing and gestures and actions and physical suffering, we see that he is one who comes from the Father, and he is personally, he is personally relative to the Father as one who he comes from personally, and he's personally the one who sends the Spirit, or from whom the Spirit comes forth, in his person. But now this is manifest to us in a new way in his human nature, his human actions, his human sufferings. So that in looking at Jesus the man, we start to see the relations of the Trinity present because the personal relations between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at the base of everything that happens in Jesus as man, because he's also God. Now that's a very, very high, quickly said answer to your question. But this, I'm just trying to sketch this a little bit so you see where it goes. It goes into how does the human life of Jesus reveal the Trinity to us? And it's very connected to your issue. Like basically a person is a, subs a modal subsistence of a, human, of a human or divine nature. And in the case of Christ, the, modal, the personal modal subsistence that he has as God is also the same that he has as man. So that his filial way of being eternally as God is that which begins to subsist in his filial way of existing in time as man born of Mary living among us. So that we can know in this one here, this man, this, sorry, this person, this personal subject here, who is man, we can know who he is also personally as God in relation to the Father and the Holy Spirit. All right, I'm just gonna say a few words here and we'll, we're gonna conclude in five minutes. Is, whether the union of the divine nature and the human is anything created, yes. It's created because God wasn't always human. He began to be human in time. Is it the same as assumption? Well, no. It's true that God assumed a human nature, but he didn't assume a human person. There wasn't a time when Jesus wasn't God and then he became God. It's a, what we say is his human nature was united. Sorry, the divine nature is united to the human nature. Okay, there's more like that, some linguistic historical stuff about that, but we won't go into it. 
Is the union of the two natures in Christ the greatest of all unions? What do you think he says? No. Why? Trinity. Yes, excellent. The, the greatest of unions is the Trinity. Anybody here read any Balthazar? When you read Balthazar, you know who I mean, Hans Urs Balthazar? Balthazar talks about the eternal sundering that exists between the Father and the Son, the eternal canonic distance between the Father and the Son that exists for eternity as the prelude to his becoming human and his descent into hell on the cross. But Aquinas, <laughs> Aquinas tells you, man, there can't exist any greater union that exists between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. So this Balthazarian poetry is kind of questionable. By greater union, does he simply mean like integrity of unity? Or, or he like means, it, you have to get into the question of the, the, the mutual inhabitation. How are the human, the divine persons present in one another? So everything in the Father is in the Son. Everything that's in the Father and the Son is in the Holy Spirit, even though they're distinct persons. So this is, goes, takes us back to like a question 42 in the Prima Pars. You'll find the answer to your question, question 42 in the Prima Pars. Uh, all, I want to tell you, I want, all I want to tell you about question 10, article 10, is something very important. Did the union of the incarnation take place by grace? Okay, so there are theologians in the Middle Ages who think that Christ's human nature had to be prepared by the kind of grace you and I have to prepare it to be united personally to the word. And the idea here is that in a certain way, the, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, is a perfecting of degrees of the kind of grace that all human beings receive. So we're all receiving grace through faith, hope, and charity. And if you keep going in that register, you get closer and closer to the hypostatic union. So God has to dispose the soul of Christ in order to unite it. Okay. Aquinas argues that it's absolutely false. Because the grace of union is something other. It's a difference of kind, not a difference of degree. And it works the other way around. God begins to be human from the first moment of the creation of the body and the soul of the baby, of the, of the embryonic Christ in the womb of Mary. From the first moment that she's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is present in her womb? None other than the eternal Son of God, himself God, subsisting as a human being. And so that little human nature, body and soul, that conceptus, is already God. It's not received a lot of grace and then become God. It's God subsisting as a human being. That's what's called the grace of union. That's all the, that's what we've been talking about. Grace because it's a gift. It's the gift of the hypostatic union. And it's a substantial union, not an accidental union. You and I are united by God accidentally in the sense that our grace is a property of our soul and it doesn't make us God. It's neither what we are substantially, it's not God substantially. You know, like if you, if you are in a state of grace or not in a state of grace, you don't cease to be human. You can't go out there and say, all those people who are not in a state of grace, if there are such, and there probably are, they're not human beings anymore. No, they are substantially human beings. They have human dignity. They're made in the image of God. But grace is very important for their eternal life. But it's a property that beatifies human beings. And it doesn't make you God himself. But Jesus in the hypostatic union is not just a man receiving grace. He is God becoming human. And that's what we call the grace of union, the gift of the union of the human nature with the divine nature in Jesus. Only he has it. Mary doesn't have it. Francis doesn't have it. Little Flower doesn't have it. We don't have it. We're never going to get it. Never going to happen. Only Jesus is God. Buddha doesn't have it. Muhammad doesn't have it. Krishna doesn't have it. Nobody has it but Jesus because only, only he is God. Okay? 
grace of union, to be the grace of his human nature, to be the human nature of God in a subsistent unity in his person. But because he has the grace of union, he has an, the highest order of created sanctifying grace. The kind of grace you and I can have, he has in plenitude. And not only that, he's the wellspring of all our grace. Not only is God, but as man. We receive our grace from the man, Jesus Christ, who has a, has a plenitude of grace in his human mind and heart. When you are baptized as an adult or as a wee babe, and you receive grace from the eternal word of God, you receive grace from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, who is the author of grace, but also the man Jesus in his human mind and heart in the glory of heaven and the resurrected life wills you, he, will, he humanly wills you to receive that grace. Now he doesn't create the grace by the power of his human nature, only as God can he create the grace, but he can will for you to receive it intentionally as man. And it's a sharing in the grace that he has as man, and the perfection of the grace that he has as man, that sanctifies his human mind and his human heart. So your grace is what the French sometimes call Christo conformant, Christ conforming. It conforms you to him. You receive your grace after the pattern of the grace first received in the human heart and mind of Jesus. But why does Jesus as man have that plenitude of grace? Well, more fundamentally, because Jesus is God. The grace of union is the, back, the backdrop. Because he is the man who is God, he also has this plenitude of sanctifying grace. He's full of wisdom and charity in his human mind and heart, and he communicates that to us. So all this stuff unfolds later in the treaties. I'm just giving you a, you know, initiation. I can recommend you two books on this subject if you want to go further with Aquinas' Christology. One is by myself called The Incarnate Word, or Incarnate Lord, Study into Mystic Christology. And another one is by my colleague, Father Dominic Legg, L-E-G-G-E, from Oxford University Press. He's the director of the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C. He's got a magnificent book from Oxford University Press called The, the, the Trinitarian Theology of, sorry, the, the, um, the Trinitarian Christology of Thomas Aquinas. How is the Christology of Thomas Aquinas Trinitarian? And it's how, it's how, is, how does the, the, the human life of Jesus reveal the Trinity in Aquinas in the Summa, or in Aquinas in the Summa? Okay, yeah, questions? Yes, yesterday. I asked about the part in the second part of was it the Secunda Secunda, I forget how to say it, where it said that already in the marriage of Adam and Eve, the incarnation was known. And you said right. today we talk about right. that. Right, okay. So he does say that the so what did we look at today that's pertinent? Was the question, would God have become human had we never sinned? And we saw that Aquinas tends towards the position that it seems in Revelation that God became human because we sinned. But he also thinks, because St. Paul says the sacrament of marriage has its principal origins in the Garden of Eden, that our first human parents were created for this mystery of the communion of God in the church, that they also, in some way, he thinks Paul is suggesting, foresaw the incarnation. Now, I mentioned earlier that According to Aquinas, man and woman in the state of grace would wed so as to communicate grace in conjugal love, and the church would track very cl closely onto the natural community of family life and political life. So Aquinas seems to think that already there, that St. Paul is revealing to us, that already there in Eden, 
you already have the mystery of God and the church being lived, the grace of union of man and God being symbolized by marriage as a mystery of, of union, not only in the order of nature, but also in the order of grace. In other words, when Adam and Eve would be married and communicate grace, they would, not, they would be a sign and instrument of the mystery of the church. That is the mystery of man's, our humanity with God in this life by grace and the life to come by, by vision. That's not to say when they were, when they loved each other in friendship and had children, that they would be communicating the beatific vision to the church, but they would be a certain kind of symbol, an instrument of the communication of grace that will in fact effectuate our union with God, our marriage with God. Aquinas is the primordial marriage of reality, is the marriage of the soul with God. We were made to marry God. But that human marriage can be a kind of image and in a way an instrument of that. Now, once we fell, that's restored in some real way, way because of the incarnation in the sacrament of matrimony. And so in the sacrament of, mat sacrament of matrimony, there's this, this sign and instrument of the communication of the grace that, that it symbolizes and it communicates the instrument of the grace to live as friends with God in such a way as to eventually espouse God. Now, Adam and Eve, he thinks, foresaw that mystery of the incarnation and this numinous marriage of God and man in the incarnation. But he doesn't think God told them why it would happen. He thinks that they, he, uh, they only understand ultimately why it happens after they've sinned. Because the incarnation happened principally for the redemption. So that, there's kind of some tension in that position. Because he actually, it means that even from the beginning, God is starting to reveal to them the fact that he will not will, but allow them to sin. But they will still have the hope of some other kind of economy of grace, even after they sin. It's like God has started to tell them a story that they don't know all of it, but they kind of know that once they fall, they don't lose hope because they still know that story is, now they start to understand more of that story and that God was actually foresaw their disobedience. He didn't cause it, he permitted it, he allowed it, he tolerated it. But now that they've fallen into death and, separate, and alienation from God, he's still, got a, he's still got this promise for them on the horizon. That's Aquinas' kind of conjectural view, and you find more of it when, you comment, when he comments on that passage from Paul about this is a great mystery or a great sacrament, the marriage of man and woman. When he comments that on that in Paul's, uh, he commented on all of Paul's epistles. I believe there he talks more about this. That's, sorry, Matthew. So when we say we're in a state of grace or temples of the Holy Spirit, does yeah. this mean that the actual substance of the Holy Ghost is present in our souls? Yes, it does, but not by identification with them. So as an efficient cause and a final cause, but not as a formal cause. Aquinas says this very explicitly in Prima Secunde, question 112, where he talks about the cause of grace. So what he says there is, we need created grace. Like, there's no faith in God. Faith in God himself doesn't have faith. But faith in us is a grace, supernatural faith. Like, so God creates the grace of faith in us. And he says we need created grace to live in friendship with God in quasi-immediacy. So some people think if there's created grace, then I can't enjoy the immediate presence of God. It's the opposite. He gives us created grace so he can be immediately present to us. So then he says, how is he immediately present to us? As efficient cause? Because the Holy Trinity present in our souls causes graces like faith, hope, and love or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then... So the form, the, the sort of essence of grace in us is the created grace, okay, caused by the immediate presence of the Holy Trinity, efficient cause. And then the final cause of that, the purpose of it, is so that we can live in friendship with the Holy Trinity immediately present to us. 
So the final cause is also immediacy, and that's famously called typically Trinitarian inhabitation. We are, Christ talks about this in, in John 15. If, if any man believes me, I and my Father will come to him and we make a home in him, inhabiting him. So we are temples of the Holy Ghost and the Father and the Son inhabit in us, the Holy Trinity inhabits in our souls. And we can enjoy that in mystical friendship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because of the created grace of faith, hope, and charity that are caused in us by the Holy Trinity. The Trinity gives us grace so that we can enjoy the presence of the person of the Trinity. And that's, you look at someone like Elizabeth of the Trinity, the 20th century Carmelite saint, her whole spirituality is, she was trained by a Dominican theologically before she entered the Carmel. And her whole spirituality is about this idea from St. Thomas of living in communion with the persons of the Trinity inhabiting her soul. Her mystical friendship with the Father, her mystical friendship with the Son, her mystical friendship with the Holy Spirit. And she took the name Elizabeth of the Trinity as a testimony to this kind of spiritual aspiration, which she vividly describes mystically in her writings. It's very interesting. Yeah, Will? So I'm having a little problem with the created um, nature of Christ for two reasons. First, it seems that if God is pure act, then he's realizing an un, a potential that hasn't been realized yet in time. If he, like there's something that he wasn't before, if he creates this human nature that then is the same as or uh, in complete union with one of his persons. And second, it seems that if the son is begotten from the father, then creation is a different relationship between a, a substantial part of the son being created and not begotten in the human nature. Say the last part again. So if, if we want to say that the Son is begotten from the Father, it seems that the human nature is not begotten but created, which is a very different kind of relationship between Father and Son. Yeah. Okay, so um, these are both good objections, and Aquinas has very satisfying, interesting answers to both of them, I think, but they are, I don't want to give a trivial rendition of them and seem to evaporate the mystery. But basically, your first consideration or concern was that the pure actuality of God would be diminished by any new thing God does, uh, especially if he newly takes on a human nature unto himself. Um, when God, cre God creates all kinds of new things all the time, and again, in the end of the world, he's going to like, remake the whole of the, in the second Big Bang, as it were. He's going to remake everything in the light of the resurrection of Christ. Um, that doesn't change the perfection of his pure actuality. On the contrary, it's only because he has an, you could call it immutable, Perfection, a perfection that can never lessen, which is that of his pure actuality, that he can create and remake the world and become incarnate for that matter. So his omnipotence is, flows from his pure actuality and he cannot be alienated from, but it allows him to do new things, including become human. The new act, and so yes, a new actualization of human nature occurs in the incarnation, but it doesn't change the divine nature. You say, yeah, but he, you said he takes it on into his person, he does but it doesn't in any way add to the actualization of his divine nature. So God becoming human truly doesn't further perfect his divine nature or make any addition of perfection to it. And then it makes that human nature seem not divine. It's not divine. It makes it, so it's, it just, is, it's it, fully it, created. You mean by divine, it's, it is a created human nature. It's the created human nature of God. It's divine in its person. I mean, the person who has it is divine and it's the, it's the human nature of a divine person but it's not itself divinity. It's not the divine nature. Well, I'll, I'll have to read more about it, but that does make it seem like then you have like a wet robot and divine nature no. moving it. No, 
No, because it moves according to the principle of its own nature. It's fully human, so he really thinks. Jesus really thinks. He grows. He burps. He digests food as a baby. Then he grows, and he has emotions, and he has reasoning, and he free, makes free decisions. The one who does all that really freely, sweetly, spontaneously, and of himself in his human autonomy is truly himself the unchanging, perfect, immutable Son of God who is always and everywhere the eternal, omnipotent God. That's why he can perform miracles. It is, it is hard to think them out both, but it can, you can do it. And, okay. Well, the second objection was really good, too. What was it? Begot. The human nature is oh, not yeah. begot. Well, okay, so in, I think it's article, it's question um, six. Am I right? Let me just go. Uh, no, it was question. He goes right into this right after the, the, the treaties we've just been reading. Um, in, yeah, question three through six, he explores... Uh, what he, he has a doctrine of what he calls mixed relations. And I'll just say a word about it. Uh, it's another way that I like to call it, it he, says, he says, sometimes we ascribe relations to God and creatures as if they're reciprocal, but what we're actually saying is they're real from one side and mental, we ascribe them mentally from the others. So that's why he means mixed. But I, I like to call it, because I think it's a little cleaner to just put it all on the ontological side and leave it off the epistemological side, uh, the doctrine of non-reciprocal relativity. So here's the thing, yeah, examples. The creation, everything that exists in creation is wholly relative to God in its subsistence and its being because it only exists because God has created it and sustains it in being. But God is in no way ontologically relative to us in the sense that his identity changes as a result of giving us being. Right? So, Because another way of thinking about it would be, well, once God creates us, he's kind of dependent on us and we're dependent on him granted. But now he's kind of dependent on us because it's sort of affecting him, you know? He's getting in a mood. You did something, you know, he's looking at you. He's looking at you. You did something. And you're affecting his moral demeanor, right? Like, he's like, well, yesterday I was sovereignly good, but today White did something I didn't like. So I'm, I'm not feeling totally sovereignly good today. I'm feeling kind of like justice is a lot more important than mercy and goodness. I'm not going to balance that out anymore. Right? And then he goes through a fit, he goes through a stages, he works through his emotions, and he gets back to being perfectly pure act. Right? No, that's not true. So God is, is somehow not diminished or imperfect, rendered more imperfect in his relativity. He's no, re, not relatively dependent on us in any way. But we're totally relatively dependent on him. On him. So he says the same thing, but mutatis mutandis, about the humanity and divinity of Christ. So the eternal word is really eternally relative to the Father because he's eternally begotten of the Father. But he's not really relative to his human nature in the sense that becoming human doesn't alter him as God or diminish his divinity or constitute him in some new way as a divine person. So he doesn't become the eternal Son of God because he becomes human. He doesn't decrease in his perfect actuation of being or his divine perfection. He doesn't lessen in it or render it in any way relative to us. The human nature is truly his human nature, but it's wholly relative to him now, and it's really human. It's not a robot. Truly act, he truly acts as man in his human thinking and human willing, but now it's wholly relative to him in such a way that whatever Jesus wants, desires, thinks about, or acts out as man is relative to his own divine identity and expressive of it. And it doesn't change the eternal relationship of the Son and the Father from all eternity. It expresses it. 
So now what Jesus is eternally as son in his relativity to the father and his personal relativity to the father is now expressed in his human uh, nature and his human free actions as expressing his total relativity to the father and his relativity to the spirit. So everything he does, thinks about, his human consciousness, his human historical consciousness, as a first century Jew all the ways he, he reflects, the stories he tells, the miracles he performs, the actions he does, the things he suffers, they're all expressive of the eternal relationship he has as son to the Father and the Holy Spirit because his human nature has now been made instrumentally relative to expressing fully his divine identity. So it takes a long time to understand that and it's like, a, you know, that's, but that's like to show you how like some of this stuff like deeply holds together. The creator can become human without being alienated from his own dignity as God and actually can express what it is to be God, the Holy Trinity, in and through his created human nature in a most human way.